Welcome to the Driven Mormon Talk podcast, where we have uncensored conversations. We exchange information. We provide resources for all the viewers and the listeners of this worldwide podcast. We are streaming live, and you can also watch these interviews on Spotify, as well as our YouTube channel, which is Pen and Pen and Consultant Solutions, LLC. I'm your fire medic CEO, LP. We got part five that we're getting ready to record here on this very special day to me, as well as most of the country, and if not the world. This is 9-11. So this is Monday, September 11th, 2023. This interview will be coming out this Thursday. I want to just jump right into the conversation. We have our applied epigeneticist, our behavioral analyst back for more, Simone Noble. She is such an incredible person. And if you're not watching these interviews, I'm telling you, you're going to be missing a whole lot of stuff. Mom, I want to thank you for joining us again for this part five. We're going to continue to have these conversations and do this work that we're doing because we're talking about ancestral and generational trauma. It spins in so many directions and we're going to go down these rabbit holes like we're going to do today. How are you doing first and foremost? Let me, let me, let me just stop because I'm going to give a quick disclaimer. If you're triggered at any point during this podcast and you need help immediately, call 911. That'll get you police, fire, EMS. If you don't have an immediate need, there's other resources that we put in the show notes. If you are suicidal, know somebody that's suicidal or know of a suicidal situation. Situation here in the U.S. called 988 toll free 24 7. If you need help with drugs or alcohol related issues, whether you're a supporter or someone who is addicted to one of these things, we have the information for Al Anon, AA, and NA. We talk about domestic violence, human and sex trafficking, sexually based offenses, true crime, and at the end of every show, we do a missing person case. And today's missing person case is going to be very near and dear to me because, again, today. Today is September 11th, and it is part true crime, part missing person. But that missing person case was solved. Simone Noble, what's going on, my sister? Uh, I'm doing so well. Today has been such a beautiful day, very relaxing and healing. So I'm excited for this conversation. I'm just going to jump right into it. So for those that don't know, Mrs. LP and I have these brilliant, funny, awful, from A to Z conversations every day, all day, and twice on Sunday. And sometimes we have these conversations and we just don't know where they're going to go. They just sometimes, when I say out of control, I don't mean in a negative sense. I mean, they just go rabbit holes, if you want to call it that, in the Twilight Zone, whatever you want to call it, we go there. Just us. And it was just me, her, and the dog. I'm going to pull up on the screen. That's why I say you got to watch these interviews because y'all miss stuff. We're talking about ancestral and generational traumas with Simone, the applied geneticist. I had a conversation with Mrs. LP about a week, week and a half ago. And she showed me this article that I'm pulling up on the screen. This article comes from People Magazine. If so, if you go to people.com, and I'll post a link to this story as well as the other two stories that are that we're going to be talking about in this podcast interview today. Two of the other stories or YouTube videos. This story is entitled Breastfeeding Mom Ordered to Bottle Feed child custody dispute and there's a quote that says why are they forcing me and the subtitle is a virginia mom has been ordered to bottle feed her six-month-old daughter so that the baby's father can have partial custody and it goes into this whole story about just what i said i'm not going to read it i'm not going to even get all into that i'm going to give you a personal story and part of this is a personal story for even our guest miss simone simone's a breastfeeding mom so who else better than have a conversation about this stuff mrs lp and i were having 
having a conversation about this article. And I said to her, my ex-wife, who's the mother of our six children, she breastfed all of our children uh, when they were babies. And we went through a very nasty divorce times too, because we got married twice and we got divorced twice. And I know part of part of the problem that I had in the second divorce was it changed all that. But by that time, she wasn't even nursing anymore. So we started talking about this article. We're, we're deep diving into it. And we were talking about not just the rights of fathers, uh, other parents that may be in a situation like this. We start talking about how in situations with not just custody, but rights as a whole. And, and in this country, women's rights are being attacked. We know the abortion issue is really high to contest it, the Roe v. Wade because of the new changes in the law. So we talked about that in part. And one of the things that Mrs. LP said, and we're not going to get into the, all of that stuff or whatever, but one of the things that Mrs. LP said was when we think about the rights as far as reproductive rights, because this article kind of touches on that, we don't really consider how places like, a, and I'm just going to, for an example, a Planned Parenthood that offers reproductive services, they don't just fo focus on abortions. Contrary to popular belief, you know, that's a very, very small percentage of the work that they do. A lot of it is family planning and, and other things, uh, testing for STDs. And there's a bunch of different things that they do with these reproductive clinics. So we were talking about that and we got to talking about how these clinics are typically when you see ads and when you see people talking about it, it's always black people that you see in these facilities getting services and then they get vilified about that and so that conversation went into the conversation about ancestral and generational traumas that conversation went to a whole nother thing on these two videos that i saw on youtube where they're talking about the untold abuse of black male slaves by white women and there's a part one and there's a part two and the site the youtube channel is called black germ and these videos are about 20 minutes long each and like i said I'm not going to play them. I'll post the links to the videos as well as that story in the show. One of the things that really struck me, and this is where Simone comes in, and I'm just going to sit back and pass the mic over to you, is the conversations, again, in this political climate about reducing and or eliminating historical conversations, especially in academia. They're not really banning books anymore. They'll put laws on the books and say, you can't talk about a particular book. You can't talk about a particular story in a particular history book. Some states don't have, you don't have the right to talk about CRT, critical race theory. Some states are doing all kinds of different things. Again, we're not going to really get into the politics of it. We're just talking about the ancestral and generational trauma and how it's affecting even today's climate because there's so many children of all ethnicities, especially the non-melanated ones, that are, are being shielded from true history. The true history is being whitewashed, for lack of a better term, because a lot of times the conversation is, well, my, my parents didn't enslave your parents or my grandfather didn't enslave your grandfather and so we had this whole conversation about eugenics and epigenetics and I thought I need to bring some home in on this conversation 
compensation. You can start wherever you want to start. If you want to give a soliloquy, I'll just sit back and push the buttons and listen. I'm just going to sit back and I asked Simone, I said, when we record this, I want her to read that article. I want her to watch those two videos and I want her to write notes that she's doing all this and don't edit shit. The mic is yours. Uh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really glad that you thought of me in, in this because this is, again, these conversations that we're having around ancestral generational trauma, they need to be had because even like you and I, right? Like we've had conversations where we might not necessarily have the same perspective, but the fact that we can come together and talk about these things, like those are the conversations that need to be had, especially when they're doing things like banning and restricting certain literature. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that you brought that up here because in one of those videos that you had me listen to and, and watch, they were talking about certain authors, right? And these books that came out um, really depicting the true experiences of the enslaved people, which are not taught in school. And, um, you know, one of these things that I know I have uh, very different views than a lot of Black Americans is on the critical race theory because, um, I don't really agree with it. And I wouldn't say that in, in its entirety, because obviously I, I'm not in the public school system. I have not seen the entire curriculum. Um, however, either way, like you know, you're talking about like, the whitewashing of, of history, like who do we think created CRT? You know, it's like these are these are things that we can start to discuss and look at because, um, you know, it's really interesting to have white teachers teach black children this anyways like just bottom line no matter what it is um and then especially when you start talking about the the banned and restricted books and um i know for me like my, my son he's half black um i do have a, a niece and a nephew who are fully black and when they before i was ever a mother um my my oldest nephew he he was asking me certain questions right because the racial tension in our in our country and he was asking certain questions um, because of the conversations in school. And he was the only little black boy in his classroom at that time. And what I saw from him, this is just, you know, one example, one experience. I'm not saying this is um, the, the, the same for everybody. However, what I noticed within him is that he felt disempowered. He felt less than the other students in his classroom. And that's why I don't necessarily agree with certain language that is being used within CRT because I don't think it's an empowering way to teach history. Um, I think it's important to understand our history and for every ethnicity to understand, um, but it's really about the language. And I think certain language is used intentionally. Um, and so, yeah, my, my biggest thing with that is that we need to be careful of how we speak about these things. Are we saying, hey, like for, for the rest of your life, you're always going to have the short end of the stick or are we going to say, hey, like X, Y, and Z can get you to where you might be feeling like you're not the short end of the stick. Um, and that is also, you know, because of my conditioning and my upbringing, my dad was a panther back in the day. And so that's, you know, that's my bias coming in. And so, you know, really with this topic and kind of circling back to that first initial article that started this whole conversation um, and the word that she uses like forcing, right? Like, why are they forcing me to do this? And that again is, is ancestral. Um, we can think about so many things, um, that have rooted back even before slavery, but during that, that time period when black women were forced to neglect their children so that they would breastfeed the white children, like all of these things, um, are so interesting to me because it resurfaces 
in modern times, right? Like history always repeats itself. It might not look the same, but it can come up in different manifestations. And I'm um, looking here at my notes because one thing, um, at, oh yeah, this is awesome because I, I noticed this ever since you sent me those videos and I've noticed it before, but I think now it's just in my face. So, um, just yesterday we went to a food hall. We are currently in Georgia and we went to a food hall. Like, you know, they have different vendors everywhere. And I was looking around, there's a couple, there's probably about six different um, interracial couples, black, white couples. And out of the, okay, seven, including myself and my husband, six of those couples, there was a white woman and a black man. And besides me, there was only one other couple that was a black woman and a white man. And I was sitting there thinking, because I knowing this, this talk is coming up. I'm like, I wonder, like, that is just so, I wonder if that example like right that small sample size represents our country and I start thinking and thinking about all of these dynamics that have come into play and I'm like I wonder if there is something within the black males in our country that find white women a certain way right because of what they endured during slavery and so those videos were talking about you know that a lot of the erased erase history within um, the slavery time was that the women were not involved but the, the real reality of it is that they were involved and that they were actually doing a lot of horrific things even more so than their than their husbands and their, the male counterparts and so it was the daughters of the owners the wives of the owners who because they were women they didn't have the right to vote they didn't couldn't hold office there's a lot of things that they didn't have um, rights on and so then they for um, therefore they internalized that and then took it out on the black enslaved and so it was just really interesting as i'm sitting here in like 2023 and i'm like oh like i wonder why that proportion is so different um and it just got me thinking because like on a personal level i know um i've done a lot of reflection on like how did i end up marrying a white man right like what is that where does that come from within me um and so it just kind of took me down this whole rabbit hole per se on how we ended up where we are today with the different um the different tensions between races in our country but then there's the marriages right like the, the love hopefully all of these examples were of love like my marriage is in love but i'm also assuming that these marriages are great marriages right so that's just an assumption it could totally not be that way um but overall it just got me thinking about that because when when two different races come together and reproduce you can kind of consider that as like the the dampening of that race right so i've actually had black women come up to me and saying that i'm like ruining the black bloodline right by having children who are not fully black um even people in my own family that have kind of said things maybe not as direct but underlying message was there um and so it's really interesting to be in this conversation because i think that there's not that many conversations like this happening and also like just my own thoughts right of like what is what happens to my bloodline when white blood comes in and for me it doesn't even make any sense because even without having married a white woman like i have irish heritage in me um i am part cherokee and taqwa indian and so there's different bloodlines already within me so then what why wouldn't it why would it matter if a lebanese man came and we procreated together you know so there's just different things um that i've been thinking about but i'll just i'll stop there to see if you have any questions but those are my initial uh train of thought you've heard me say this before that we all are from the same race 
And I think a lot of times people, when we talk about race, we tend to separate it. You know, black race, white, Asian race. We're all part of the human race. Now, there's various ethnicities, and that people aren't saying the proper term. This is part of the reason why we want you, because you have a master's degree in education and so many different certifications and experiences, what you believe should be talked about in these conversations, specifically about the eugenics and epigenetics. Because when I look at that article and when I see and, and watch these videos, and those two videos were very powerful. First of all, let's start with the art about the breastfeeding, because you're a breastfeeding. What did you think about that? Yeah, it was interesting. And I also feel like it's so close to my heart because I had um, a dear friend go through a similar custody issue um, when she was breastfeeding her daughter. And um, in this situation, you know, she ended up stopping breastfeeding altogether. And there was no breastfeeding going on. And I'm a huge advocate for breastfeeding for so many different reasons. And um, at that same time for the article, like to me, it's like, if you're, if, if the father of your children, like if you want them to be involved and you want that process to be amicable, it would make sense to bottle feed, right? Like I, um, my, my son is three and a half and we're still on our breastfeeding journey. And in the beginning, you know, my husband really wanted to be involved. That's part of his connection with my child is to be able to feed his child. And so pumping and giving him access to be able to bottle feed our son to me was beautiful. And I wanted that experience for them. In that respect, it, it isn't that difficult to do. However, of course, if this mother in the article um, is feeling resentful for this man, then of course she would do things like that, like to manipulate the situation. But in reality, in the grand scheme of things, like pumping and, and to, to create more abundance of your breast milk, to then be able to give it to your partner to feed your child, um, I think it's a beautiful thing. And of course, again, the, the word force was my, um, my concern in that, that video or in that article, right? Because is it, is it that they're forcing, is it that they're forcing her to actually bottle feed or is it that they're forcing her to give milk for her child? And I think there's a, a difference between that because, of course, if she's with her child, she could just, they could just latch and she could nurse the traditional way. Yeah. Um, I think the, the, the article is really kind of misworded, unless I'm just completely not understanding the, the, the case here. But it wouldn't be that they were forcing her to stop latch nursing. It would be that they were forcing her to give the dad milk in order for him to also, you know, continue that journey. And so for me, like, that is almost a better situation than what happened with my friend, right? My friend was, like, basically not given the opportunity to breastfeed anymore because of the custody and then just the lack of being with her child and her, her breast milk dried up. And so there's things that we can do, even like pumping, right? You're, if you continue pumping, your, your breast milk will never dry up. Um, adding certain things to your, your diet, of course. Um, but yeah, the article is just really interesting to me because I just feel like at any point, if you're able to give your child your own breast milk over formula, then that's going to be better. So like, wouldn't, for me, my thought, my question to her would be, wouldn't you rather send your baby with their father with your breast milk other, versus having him go to the store and buying formula, which is not the best for your child? And so that's, that's interesting. I would love to see, like, what happens next with that article? Because I'm curious, you know, like, what, you know, what happens in that situation? And what was the thought process of that mother in the situation? We watched the videos. Let's start with the first video. Because that talked about, and I'm just reading from 
the YouTube channel it says the history uh, in our in the video is entitled The Untold Abuse of Black Male Slaves by White Again, this is on the YouTube channel Black Journals. And so what it I'm just reading the description of the video because it's a two part. And I'm just paraphrasing some of the stuff. It talks about the history of slavery. It's a painful reminder of humans humanity's capacity for cruelty and oppression. Talks about slavery in America was deeply entrenched in the colonial or from the colonial era through the antebellum period with enslaved Africans and their descendants subjected to forced labor, physical punishment, and various forms of degradation. Uh, it talks about what the term antebellum means, which is a Latin term where anti means before and bellum means war. It focuses on period before the Civil War, specifically between the years of the late 18th century, which is, was after the War 1812, all the way down to the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861. It really starts to get into how white women played a huge and leading role in slavery, especially of black males. You know, because we do have these conversations on the Trigger One Talk podcast that can be triggering. We use real words. So there was a lot of raping going on in slavery. Most people only think of it being the white male slave owners to the black women and girls that were slaves. There was a lot of raping going on for those black men by those white women who were slave owners. Some of them owned slaves through the marriage. Some of them owned slaves outright. Uh, and they weren't men. And so that YouTube video talks about it. And they really do a great historical breakdown of that in parts one and two. I want to get your thoughts about, let's start with the part one. When you saw that video, and I know you got a bunch of notes, so again, the mic is yours. Okay, okay. Um, yes. Oof. Oh, okay. So one of the things that um, I think really tackles the epigenetics portion of what we're talking about is it's really interesting that in those times, in the antebellum period, white little girls would be gifted slaves. And so that got me thinking about like the conditioning, right? So a lot of times when we're talking about epigenetics and in, in the ancestral generational space, there are things that are passed down from generation to generation. And that is actually on a genetic level. Like that is actually shown within our DNA that things like, um, you know, uh, um, addiction and, and, and um, mental health can be passed down. Traumas that happened hundreds of year ago, years ago can be passed down. And so when I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about this, um, this, this programming that now is on the other side, right? Because a lot of the things that we've been talking about thus far is, is from the black perspective, but everybody has ancestors. So everybody has ancestral trauma. And so, and the conditioning and the programming goes right, right into that. And so the fact that these infants, these little, little, little girls of the, um, the daughters of the slave owners would be gifted um slaves and that they would be taught how to manage slaves they'd be taught with their brothers how to um create compliance within slaves right the whipping the beating the raping 
And um, it was just interesting to me from that part one about how deep that programming is. And then it gets me to think about like the women in the last just 50 years and the things that they, some white women have created within our country that are like really, really horrible. And, um, you know, it's, it's really quite interesting because again, just linking back to the antebellum period and how they were conditioned and programmed to perceive black men as lesser than, and of course, black people altogether. But um, yeah, that, that, that part one, like one of my, all of, a lot of the notes that came from that was just the conditioning, right? And that, that we are not human, that the black men were not human, that they were animals, that they could be controlled and that they could be um, manipulated and nothing would happen, right? Like that they wouldn't get in trouble per se. And of course there were sometimes um, like in that part one, where there was a woman who housed um, a lot of slaves and her husband was frequently gone. And she had the secret chamber um, and a, the top level floor. Oh, the lady in Louisiana. Uh, yeah. Y'all got to look at this. I'm telling you. There, I mean, I'm sorry, sorry. There's this woman in Louisiana, in, in NOLA, New Orleans, who owned slaves. And she had this mansion. It was a three-story mansion. And she was into what we now know as the sadomasochism type of stuff, the BDSM, but she was doing it to her slaves. It wasn't like she was doing this to other white men, you know, whatever. And then taking it to a whole nother level. Taking it to, you're talking about like torture to the 20th power. Mm-hmm. And so like, the, and, and it was interesting when I heard that there were actually laws on the upkeep of slaves, right? Like you had to um, take care of them to a certain degree because then they could be traded, bought, da 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 da. And so the fact that she actually ended up getting um, kind of caught during the fire, right? And they people were able to discover her torture chamber, and that she was actually—I um, don't know if she was just fined. I think it was just fine. Like I think that's the only thing that happened to her is that she was just fined, um, like a slap on the wrist. Like, hmm. Um, <laughs> it's, it was just so it, it, incredible to me that these secrets within our history, like, I can't believe it took me until now to even know that, like, that's wild to me. And, you know, it just shows again, like the programming, like, was she gifted slaves when she was a baby? Was she, did she see the torture of the whipping and all of that happen when she was a child before like her parents died and all these different things. And so it's again, like with this ancestral trauma and the epigenetics of this, like it does get passed down. And that's why I think like, I was going to bring this up, but now I have to. In the comment section on one of the videos, I love reading like the trolls. I love reading the comment section. But one of the comments um, was, this explains all the Karens of today. And I just was cracking up because it's kind of true, right? Like there are some times where the white, white women who overstep their, their boundary, right? Or they overstay, they don't stay in their lane and they're, they're getting into somebody's business that's not theirs. Um, and can you link that to ancestral trauma with their their grandmothers, their great grandmothers were doing? Like certainly, right? And so it's not to give them excuse or a pass to to like not be like that anymore, but it is just a reality that we can look at. And that once we start to realize all of these things are happening around us because of where we came from, we can start understanding our history and how to do better, right? And how to show up differently when we are encountered with a Karen, like how to show up differently or how, how to really compose yourself or hold yourself. And so that was um, one of the notes I had. 
And another thing that I think is really important for people to understand is that it wasn't just the white slave owners to the black women. And it wasn't just these white women raping the black men. Sometimes, and actually it happened quite often, where the owners, whether it was the, the male or the female white person, doesn't matter who it was, would actually force the slaves themselves to have sex. So it would be this, the owner of this woman who she knew that she was pregnant and that she wanted a wet nurse. So a wet nurse is what in that day was a black woman who could produce milk for that white child. And so a lot of the times in, the, in part two that they were talking about was like this um, collective rape subjectivity. And what that really means is that it was happening on all fronts, on all angles, and all layers. And for me, that is one of the, um, like part two was a really personal experience for me because of the sexual trauma that I have endured that has been a pattern in my bloodline, in my lineage. And I only know my maternal side for, for that type of history. Um, however, it's so prevalent on my maternal side that it's like not only you know, was it the, the white men raping the black slaves? Like the, the black men were forced to rape black women. And, and again, like that is the cycle that was in my family. Like my grandmother was born because of her mother being raped by a black man. So a black man raping a black woman producing my, my grandmother. And um, yeah, it's just like all of these things that when you zoom out, you're like, whoa, holy fuck, what is happening? Because it's, it's, it's only up to us, the people who are currently alive, to break those cycles. And there's a lot of people doing that work right now, cycle breakers and generational curse, like um, scholars, all these different things that are happening. Um, and for me, that was like what really hit home when they said that word, collective rape subjectivity. Um, because in, in my reality, I've had relationships and relations with all different types of ethnicities. However, all of my experiences of sexual harassment and, and rape have been from black men. And so I was just thinking about that as I was listening to that part too. And like, wow, like they were actually forced to create harm with families. And, and then that has a ripple effect to today, to now, to when my grandmother was born, like all of these things. And so those were like my, 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 my big juice um, note from those two parts. And yeah, it just, it was, it was really, it really touched me because that's my personal experience. You know, what came to mind when we were talking, I was thinking about the movie, The Color Purple. Uh, we know that's a work of fiction, great book and better movie. And I know they're redoing a movie, which that's a whole other conversation. Anyway, I think about the scene where Sophia, who was played by Oprah Winfrey, she uh, was working for the, she was Mrs. Millie, Miss Millie's maid. And uh, she had just got out of prison. She's working as the maid, uh, which that whole argument that ended up landing her in prison when she ended up hitting the white guy was all about her working as this woman's maid. And she was like, no, I don't want to be a maid or whatever. So she ends up getting incarcerated for 12 years, gets out of prison, ends up working for the lady any damn way. And I remember the scene, and it, you know, if you haven't seen the movie by now, I'm just, whatever. So, spoiler alert, whatever. There's a scene where uh, she gets, like, 
a, t a chance to go home and spend the holidays. It was Christmas, I believe, uh, with her family that she hadn't seen since she's been pretty much in jail or since she even got out of jail. So they go home. She drops her off, and she couldn't drive really well, the, the, the woman, Miss Miller. And so it got to a point where all the, the men, the black men that were there at the house that were trying to help her, she got scared. Like they were trying to attack her or whatever. And so Sophia comes out of the house and she kind of makes this statement, you know, talking like they were trying to hurt her or harm her or something like that. And, you know, she kind of looked at her like, no, that's not what they're trying to do. But, you know, uh, and then the lady asked her to drive her home. She's like, you know, I'm, I'm here with my family. Like you gave me this furlough or whatever you want to call it. And then she pulled the cannon move. No, she pulled the power move. Now, she wasn't her slave, but she was like an indentured servant at that point. And so she had to cut her vacation and her trip to her family short because, you know, she, Miss Millie pulled a power move on her. And I thought, damn. You know, it's nothing different than what a lot of, and I, I'm just, you know, I normally don't speak for black people, you know, because the black community doesn't meet in my house every Wednesday night for tea and, 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 and crumpets, you know, cigars and brandy for the guys or women. You know, so I'll just speak for me. In my experience, the guys that I've talked to, the black guys that I've talked to when it came to dating white girls and white women, it was really kind of frowned upon because. You know, a lot of times we would hear stories where they may get together, the white women and the black men, and then somehow the story gets out that this white woman or this white girl is with this black boy or this black man, and the word rape comes out. Or, you know, if it doesn't come out, you think about Emmett Till's situation where he whistled, quote-unquote, at this white woman in the South because he was from Chicago and they killed him, you know. Uh, so, you know, when it comes to relationships, there's still a lot of black men, even to this day, that will not even look at a white woman, let alone touch her, let alone have intercourse with her because of that fear of harm. And there's still, I, I was talking to Mrs. LP recently and she said, you know, She's in her mid-40s. She said when she was a late teen, because she's biracial, and she was adopted into a white family, and she said one of her brothers, uh, who's white, his white friends made a statement to her and told her, basically, if I ever see or hear about you, you know, letting a black man touch you, it's going down. It's going to be a problem. You know? So... We see and hear these things even in modern times, which is mind-boggling because it's like, again, we're all humans. What did you think about the second video? Yes, that one was, again, just as, I kind of touched on it a little bit, but that one in particular was really interesting to me coming from the space of, of the, the breastfeeding, right, that part, and then also when the the white women well it was talking about how the white women would oftentimes be lonely or um have like pent up sexual energy and so it was like interesting the language that they use in that video also 
And I was like, huh, like, I wonder who the creator <laughs> was of this video because, like, um, yeah, it's almost like, oh, yeah, they had so much sexual energy that they just had to rape the black men. And it's like, I'm pretty sure if their husbands left the, the community, they weren't the only white man that left, you know, like, it, there were yeah. other white men, but that could have been consensual. Um, and so I think even that, right, like, the language that we're using around these atrocities is also generational and, and ancestral and like why not just call the black horse black like just just call it like it is and it's interesting because in that video i didn't notice it so much in the in part one but definitely in part two just the way that they were speaking about certain topics i was like i feel like not really sugarcoating but it was like you're just it wasn't articulated in the way that i might have i might have said those same things um and so again just with like this even though, you know, I feel like the people who were putting this out there, like they do want the truth per se to be out there. It's just like in the manner of which it was happening. Um, and so that was like the main thing that I was that I was noticing within that video. And then also the statistic that I wrote down here um, that white women actually comprised of 40 percent of the slave owners. So out of all the slave owners that were during the antebellum period, 40 percent of them were actually women. And they, oh. they highlighted this right. I know. I didn't know that until. I forgot about that. Yeah, I, I forgot about that that particular stat. Forty percent. Yeah, and there was even an um, an example of two um, engaged people, a woman, a white woman, and a white man, and they both had slaves. The man had, I think, it was eight slaves, and the woman had something like, oh, the crazy number. I, I can't even remember. It might have been like thirty or sixty slaves. Like it was a high number. Um, that was. Wait, that was uh, the Washington, Georgia Martha. Yes, yes, it was the Washington. The first man in the U.S., yes. He had eight, and she had like 56 or something like that. Yeah, it was wild. And yeah. so, again, like that number, that 40% of slave owners being white women, like how come this is not talked about? Like that's so wild. That's a huge, that's a huge number. Like in science, 40% is a lot. Um, I'll tell you 40% so, of anything that's valuable. Right. That it, and it is because again, like even just with that, with that example with the Washingtons, right? So she then had a fight in court to keep her slaves as her own and not like handing it over to her husband. And, um, yeah, it was just super interesting because I didn't know, one, I didn't know how white women in that time actually had the ability to buy, sell, and trade slaves on their own. Like I didn't know that they didn't need um you know a husband to do that and that comes from again what we we're talking about before but being gifted these slaves when they were infants and then they grew into understanding how to be masters and how to be um over like to have power over another human and so they didn't want to relinquish that power once they got married and i think that was also interesting component to this entire picture that we've been painting for everybody today is that it's always about power like all of this is about power whether it's um, you know, the, the, the whipping or the raping, like all of it is power. And the fact that actually um, the daughters and sons of the slave owners were forced to punish the slaves so that they can get almost like desensitize them to the process. And that was just mind blowing too, because the desensitization to these things are obvious in our modern society. Um, there was actually, I went to a luncheon several months ago um, and it was all black women. And I, I learned something, and it was this term called white virality. Have you heard of this? 
so like you know the word feral like the fe- like a feral like wild savage right so the term white virality is really this notion that white people um have it in their dna like in their genetics in their being to be savage to be ruthless to be um yeah violent like all of these different terms and so when i learned that i was like wow that's really interesting because um i I can see that. Like, I can see that maybe not to the extent that this one article was speaking about that I read, but it is interesting because I do believe that melanated people um, have more of earth-based practices in their ancestry. So they're more connected to animals and to plants and so that they're conscious of life, right? Like what is alive. And so that our, our actions and our habits are typically less violent because we are so connected and so aware and then i think about okay what about all of the white ancestors of like the nordic region right who were really connected with the land also and you know like the witches that were all wiped out up in northern europe like they were very connected to the land also so then i was like okay so then when did this white virality come into play like when did this actually um become something that is worth speaking about in terms of ancestral and generational trauma and so for me i started thinking about the beginning of the slave era right because america which a lot of people don't know that america was kind of like the last the last country on board to slavery and actually after a lot of europe had ended slavery we were still doing it and so i started thinking about this white reality it's like okay so obviously comes from europe um and then like what part of that like what initiated that and i don't have the answer i haven't really dug into that um but it is a concept that is really interesting right like i it's just it triggers all of these questions into a lot of the atrocities that happen that have happened in our country um, that are either done by white people or were taught to us by white people. And so then again, like with the raping, right? Like had, and this is all hypothetical thinking, right? But like had the black man not been raped or had the black man not been forced to rape others, like would that be part of their, because it happens so often now in modern times, like it happens so often. It's like, would that not be part of the conversation right now had they not had that influence back in the antebellum period? And so just all of these questions that can come up, but white virality was a new concept for me. And I just learned about that a few months ago. One of my favorite movies is Jungle Fever, Spike Lee's Jungle Fever. And there's a scene in the movie, and I'll just explore but if you haven't seen Jungle Fever, there's a scene in the movie where they're having dinner, so it's Wesley Snipes' character. He's sitting there with his parents, and he got into an interracial affair with this white Italian woman that he worked with. And so and he was married with a child at the time. So when she found out about it, she threw him out and all this stuff. And so they got an apartment together and all this stuff. So they're this is a neither parents then his parents because her dad her mom died uh her dad beat her with a belt when he found out i mean like whipped her with a belt like she was a little kid and put her out and so uh they're having this dinner with his parents and his dad is a minister and he went into this kind of soliloquy about what's going on with them and he tied it into what we're talking about now, how white women during slave times 
they were exalted and they were put on this pedestal and white men was like, you are the fairest thing in the world, kind of like a Cinderella thing or whatever. You know, you're so exalted and wanted, like nobody should touch it, not even me. But in the nighttime, when the sun went down and they got to drinking or doing whatever, they sneak into the slave quarters and get all the black women. And sometimes they would even do rapes with black men because there's some historical documentation about that also where the white men were raping black men too. And he talked about that, and this was a really short scene. Uh, it only lasted a few minutes, but I thought about that also because when we're talking about epigenetics and we're talking about eugenics, especially from an ancestral and generational trauma perspective, as you know, there are so many elements that you can tie together, not just with a white virility, talk about chattel slavery, you talk about uh, the economic portion of it, because even today, there are conversations. I live in Charlotte. You're in Georgia. You know, I'm, I'm in North Carolina. You know, you're in, in Georgia. I can go less than 10 miles from where I live and, and see Confederate flags. You know, Stone Mountain, uh, Georgia passed law that, you know, because there's all these laws around the country where they're getting rid of these Confederate statues and flags and all this stuff, whatever was. Georgia said, we're not going to touch Stone Mountain. It's going to stay just like it is with those three Confederate generals ingrained in that granite mountainside of Stone Mountain. And Stone Mountain's going to still be Stone Mountain because you can go there and at night they have this video uh, thing that they show on the side of the mountain where those statues are engraved in that granite. And it's all about the Confederacy and all of this stuff. And it's it's kind of a, the video is not bad in terms of like they're not showing people like burning crosses or hanging folks and none of that stuff or whatever, but it's a celebration of the Confederacy and, and, and likeness. You know, it's, it's very cleanly produced and different things like that. And I remember when I went to Stone Mountain with my family back in 2006 and we saw that video and I was sitting there and I was like, I think we should go now. Because <laughs> you know, we started hearing a lot of the white folks, they was yeehawing and all this stuff. And I'm like, and I didn't expect, I didn't know that they did this video thing. And I know they, they talked about having this fireworks display and all this stuff or whatever. And I was sitting and watching the video and I was like, and it was some black people there, but it wasn't a lot of us. I mean, we were really in the minority in terms of the numbers. And I just remember like, okay, it's time to go. You know, and we got out of it. Uh, nobody ever said anything negative to us or we didn't get any flack or anything like that. I didn't recall anybody looking at us sideways and none of that stuff. I mean, everybody was, you know, being respectful and all that. I just felt like, man, I felt like I was in a time warp for that 30 minute period watching that video. For you being someone who deals with epigenetics and I want to kind of just wrap it up because we're going to continue having these conversations 
overall, what are your thoughts about these particular topics? Because this conversation is as stifled as it may be, as whitewashed as it may get, as restrictive as it might get, especially in academia, but also in households, because that's where the real education starts. You learn more at home than you do in an academic institution, especially about social norms and society and different things like that. What say you from an academic perspective? Yeah, this is a great question because I think it applies to everybody. Again, we all have ancestors. We all um, have come from a line of, of people, right? And so really what I would leave this conversation today is to, to one, start your reflection process like reflecting on your belief system because our belief system actually governs so much of our physical health and of course our mental and emotional health but when we can start to evaluate that everything changes and what oftentimes happens is when we start this journey of introspection looking at where our belief systems come from we will realize that our beliefs usually don't come from ourselves they come from our parents, right? And that makes sense. Like when you start to think about it, it makes sense. And so if you are a person who might have some type of judgments towards certain people, and that doesn't mean it's only white people having judgments to black people, that could be black people having judgments um, to white people and all the other um, ethnicities in between. Because I remember having um, a Chinese friend when I was in high school and her father was like really upset that we were friends until he met me. And then he was able to release all of his misconceptions of what black americans were you know coming from china and like only thing that he knew was what was being put out on the media and so again like with this evaluation of our belief systems that can change so much for us on that genetic level because our thoughts control so much of what we who we are and what we do um and again like it's just this this kind of this dance between our thoughts and our feelings and that these are magnetic and and so influential and so if you feel like you know there's there's something that could be done differently or you can show up differently in your life to the people who you're working with who you surround yourself with um to start with your belief system because then everything else will be able to be modified with ease and so yeah with the epigenetics portion of what we're talking about today this can really start with the exploration of self and I think that's where it always should start. Any type of healing, anything that's going on, you start with yourself, you look inward and you see what you can do differently because it's not, you know, I don't play the blame game. You can't blame your parents. Oh, well, my parents were racist. So I just, I, it's all these years I've been racist. It's like, no, okay, no. you know, we have to take radical res self-responsibility over our lives. And so that is a huge piece of what I do in the work that I do is self-accountability. And that plays into so much of what we're doing and how we're crafting our reality, right? Because the two main things, like I said before, that craft our reality are our thoughts and our feelings. And so this, yeah, and so what we're doing and what we've been talking about here, it, there's a lot of feelings that can rise up, right? These are uncomfortable conversations. These are conversations that can be very triggering. And so your thoughts and your, and your feelings that go with this um, can really determine the outcome on how you perceive the race tension in our country or how you are perceived as who you are. Um, so yeah, I think that would be like the golden ticket to start um, is, is modifying 
modifying your thoughts because again that's where it starts your thoughts and your feelings i got on the screen a picture it's kind of a video i don't know if you would call it a meme i see i told you simone i need your brain more than just its work in terms of these episodes you're my social media mentor we'll talk about You've got a great post on your IG page, and it, it, it started off with a picture of a black man with a chain wrapped around his head, uh, around his arm. And the caption reads, the world is literally burning. So y'all got to watch this episode, so it's getting missed stuff when you don't watch it. And we love our listeners, so keep listening. We just want you to watch also. The world is literally burning. We do not fear it. For we know from ashes we rise. Phoenix is born. We are coming together in unity, in love, in purpose. Become the master of your desired reality. Free your mind and your soul. A divine and brilliant mind is guiding us this Wednesday on a journey that allows the truth of exiting the matrix and having the capacity to be present with the things you love and creating the high frequency online business and or amplifying the business you already have, understanding why freedom matters and why most people don't ever create it. And there's some other information on here uh, that if you want to know more about what Simone has on her social media, I have the links in the show notes, as always, for her social media, including her link tree, which is phenomenal because you offer so much stuff on your link tree. It is just like, wow. You know, uh, it's like you're a one-stop shop. Uh, so, uh, thank, thank you for bringing up thank you for bringing up that poem. It was um, I wrote that poem really with that this idea, right? Of that even though we 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 are not slaves, right? Physical slaves working in the fields and in the house, that we a lot of us are still slaves in our mindsets, right? Like we're either a slave to the system or we're slave to whatever belief system that has been constructed for us not by us, but for us, like these, these thoughts and these beliefs are given to us, whether it's consciously or unconsciously. And um, that poem that I wrote was, I, I was in this state of like, just really wanting to like shout from the rooftops, like the freedom isn't, doesn't really exist like you think it does. You know, if you're still succumb, if you're still succumbing to a lot of these different um, notions and beliefs and like still still blaming right like that talking about blaming other people for your situation like you're then a slave to them right if you're blaming your ex from 10 years ago for your situation now like you're a slave to that to that ex um or whatever you have it so yeah that was really important for me to get that message out there that the, the chains are not literal anymore they're not physically on us um but they can very well be in our minds Conscious parenting expert, spiritual scientist, ancestral trauma healing. You got the healing on what I'm seeing. Ooh, I got it. I got it. Yeah. Your healing device. If you want to know about, more about the healing device, go to our link tree and I'll have that link again posted in the show notes. Applied epigeneticis, you know, you have a, a great alternative. IG page, which is at Hardy and Free, which talks about all of those things, also, especially with the healing. And also, you have another IG page, ways.up, 
that the, the wild ones? What is that particular? That is um, our family adventures. So that started when we first got our camper van, and then we moved to Costa Rica. So we were expats for a while. So it's like documentation on, on our adventures as a family. Cool, cool, cool. I want you to stay on because we're about to end. I want to show the story about, because today is September 11, 2023. And, you know, today is the 22nd anniversary of the events that happened in New York City with the collapse of the Twin Towers by these terrorists. I, being a retired paramedic, part of the reason I got into EMS was I got into EMS in 2006 because when I thought about what happened on 9-11, I remember exactly where it was when uh, that happened. And I remember that there was two lines of people that were at ground zero. These were public service workers, police, fire, EMS, other public service workers uh, that worked for the city. And just, it was just a, a feeling, a sea of humanity, like they talked about during the George Floyd trauma. And I remember wanting to be one of those people that was passing down buckets of rubble as they were clearing ground zero. I was in St. Louis at the time. Wasn't even thinking about EMS during that time. I was in doing um, computer work and I was working in social services during that time. And five years later, I ended up getting into EMS. And so today being the, the anniversary of 9-11, I want to highlight, because we talk about missing persons and we talk about true crime. Well, I got two for one today. So this comes from a website called Independent, and their URL is independent.co.uk. So this is a media, this is a media company in the UK, in, in England. And they got a story about two 9-11 victims were finally identified through DNA testing days before the 22nd anniversary of the terror attack. And they said efforts by the OCME, and that's the city medical examiner in New York. Their efforts have meant more victims' remains can return to families because a lot of DNA is being collected from like Ancestry and 23andMe and other sources of what um, There's a picture in this story, and it says the remains of over 1,000 victims, because there were over 3,000 that died on 9-11. The remains of over 1,000 victims are being held at the World Trade Center Memorial waiting to be tested. Waiting to be tested. And it says two victims of the September 11 attacks have been identified by advanced DNA testing days before today's anniversary. Uh, today marks the 22nd year since the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center that destroyed the Twin Towers and killed 2,000 977 victims. Both the man and the woman have been ID'd. Their names are being withheld at the family's request. New York City's medical examiner has been testing the remains of the attack victims, which are all stored in the National September 11 Memorial and Museum at the World Trade Center site. The process is being carried out in order to return the victims to their families. A positive ID match has not been made in two years, since September 2021 until a few days ago. Before this, the last match was made in 2019. That just floors me. 
And this is not any uh, to cast any dispersions against the OCME or the officials in New York because I know that they are working their butts off to, to bring closure to these families. It just boggles my mind that 2,977 people are dead. Uh, there's over a thousand of these victims that have not been identified. And you would think with the advances in technology, especially in DNA, and I got to do some more research on this because I just haven't in a while. But, you know, I want to say that to all of those that have been affected by the tragedy of 9-11, because it changed the world as we know it. You talk about like December 7th, 41, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, they call that a day that lived in infamy. This is the same, you know, and in some ways even worse because it changed our whole world. So me being a paramedic and a firefighter in my office, you see behind me, I got two posters of one is a firefighter post, one is a cardiology chart because as a paramedic, you're a junior cardiologist. And you can't see it behind me, but behind my chair, I got a cork, or cork board with all these fire and police and EMS patches and all kind of stuff or whatever. I just want to say that to those that are still mourning the loss of those 343 firefighters and those paramedics and those EMTs and all of those workers that worked in both towers and those that were lost in the Pentagon attack as well as those that were on United 93 that uh, went down in Pennsylvania. Peace and blessings be upon you and your families, as well as those eternal souls of those that are not here anymore forever. Never forget 9-11. And on my desk here, I got a puzzle that I got from my mother-in-law. It is a 3D puzzle of One World Trade Center uh, that I put together. And it was like um, 40 pieces or something like that. And I just, this is like one of my prized possessions. It keeps me focused on the work that I do. Even though I'm retired, I'm still in that fox. I still work as a consultant for active violent critical incidents, CPR classes, you know, stop bleeding stuff, talking about these public health and public safety and gun safety. I'm getting to the two way, the politics of that stuff. But as someone who's retired, I never forget what got me into doing the work in the front. That's it. That's all. Again, Simone, as always, I want to thank you so much. We'll come up with some more information and do part six because we're going to keep talking about ancestral and generational trauma as long as we can do it. For Simone Opal, this is the Trigger Run and Talk podcast. In the closing, take a first day CPR, start the bleed class. Not a matter if, but when and where an emergency is going to happen. And what are you going to do if you get caught up in that situation? Because emergencies happen everywhere. Houses of worship, schools, businesses, academic institutions, hospitals, concert venues, sporting events, you name it, any time of day, anywhere. Anybody can get it and anybody can give it when it comes to trauma. We want you to be an immediate responder until a first responder can show up and take over patient care. Be a by doer, not a bystander, as my man, my work partner, Doc, always says. LPL.